Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. It can be found in your bulletin. You could follow in your own Bibles. This is the word of God. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart to, with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the ways that your word challenges us, uh, stretches us, shows us our need for you, and then provides answers uh, for our redemption. We ask, Lord God, this morning that you would be working by your spirit through my words in our hearts, through the proclamation of your word uh, to effect change, that you would work into our hearts a desire for righteousness a love for your things, a love for your son, and that you would make us to be more like him. We thank you. We give you glory and honor this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This morning as we begin, I want to share a little story with you. Uh, When I was a child, I went to the same dentist year after year, Um, and uh, every year my experience with the dentist was uh, very similar. Um, I had a uh, probably average to below average experience with the dentist. Every time I went, they would find a cavity, they would fill the cavity, maybe they would pull a tooth, and that was my experience year after year. It was just kind of okay, but not really. And that happened all the way through my college years. Well, after college, I got married to my wife, and one of the things we talked about after we got married was, what dentist are we going to go to? She had a brilliant idea. She said, you know, I know we're living in Virginia, but we should continue seeing my dentist in New York, and she had a very powerful argument. My dentist is terrific. Her dentist office is in her home. She's got a little dog that runs around, and when you sit back in the chair, the dog jumps up on your lap. It's really nice, right? And she only takes whatever the insurance gives her. She never charges a dime. Well, this sounded like a a win-win situation, right? So from the year we were married uh, in Virginia all the way through the time that we were in Pennsylvania through seminary, we went to see this dentist. And we would drive up there once or twice a year for our dentist appointments to New York. And I started to love this dentist because you know what? Every time I would go to see her, she would say, your teeth look great. No cavities, nothing wrong, you're good to go. Year after year. And I began to get the impression that I was really growing up. I was taking care of my teeth. I had great hygiene. Things were perfect, and I would pat myself on the back year after year after year. After seminary, we we moved back down here to Virginia, 
And at some point, there was a conversation, do we really want to keep going to New York to see our dentist? And so we decided no. We found what we thought was the best dentist in, in Lynchburg after a lot of reviews and really was a good dentist. When I walked in, I felt immediately like I had gone into the 21st century. I mean, everything was cutting edge. The technology was great. And I remember my first appointment with that dentist. Took an x-ray, and they had these x-ray machines I had never seen before. And I remember sitting there in the chair, the dentist rolling up his chair to mine, and he said, Mr. Rigg, I've got bad news for you. And he pulled up the x-ray, and he, si he said, you see that dark spot, and 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 that dark spot? You have seven cavities and two more on the way. He said, we're going to have to fill nine cavities. And that can't be done in one meeting, so we're going to have to schedule three, three fillings throughout the next year. Okay? I came to realize very quickly that I hadn't been taking care of my teeth so much better the last six years. It was simply that the dentist in New York wasn't looking for cavities. I don't know why. The experience was the very same for my wife who went the next week and got the same report from the dentist. Okay? I, I share that with you because I think that is how, as human beings, we often function in relationship to the brokenness of this world. The brokenness of this world, the sinfulness in our hearts, and the damage that it causes, we would often rather live in naive ignorance, okay? The principle that it illustrates is very important. Truth does not cease to exist simply because we choose to ignore it. Truth does not cease to exist simply because we choose to ignore it. You see, I think that as human beings, most of us would love to live in that ignorance with some authoritative voice saying to us, all is well. You're good, I'm good, we're good, I'll see you next year. There's nothing here to be concerned about. It's good, carry on, right? And for a while, that feels really good, doesn't it? Because we think we've got it all together. There are no problems. There's nothing to be concerned about. This morning, as we continue our work in the book of Ecclesiastes, I would submit to you that Solomon is playing the role of the dentist in Lynchburg, okay? Solomon is the one with the very good x-ray machine who is saying to you and to I, we've got a problem. Mr. Rig, there's a problem. There is decay in your heart and it needs to be addressed. And we keep seeing that week after week, Solomon is relentless at putting our brokenness right in front of our faces, okay? And so as we've gone through this book, if you felt uncomfortable, it's because we are uncomfortable with the confrontation of our own sin, brokenness, and limited, uh, limitedness in this world. That's what Solomon's doing. So this morning, we transition back to the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes, the problems with this world, the problems with this life, and why we cannot overcome them on our own. Now, if you're wondering, how do we know that we've gone from last week, which is just a beautiful illustration of God's truth in this world, how do we know we've gone back to problem territory? Well, remember the key words here. Last week began, uh, 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 there's a season for everything under heaven. And I said to you, that is code in Solomon's world for according to God. This week he begins, and what does he say? He begins in verse 16 by saying to us, Moreover, I saw under the sun. That is his introduction back into the world of problems. Under the sun is code for 
according to things after Genesis 3, according to things in a broken world, according to things by the mind of man. And so this morning we transition back into a world where Solomon will again deal with the brokenness of the world that we live in. If you look at the insert in your bulletin, I've outlined this with three another statements, another problem, another truth, another exhortation, because yes, in one way, this is the same message we've been hearing, it's a different iteration of it, and there'll be important things to highlight, but it's the same theme throughout the book. So first thing we see, the cap was left off the marker, which means it won't work. Try this one. There we go. We've got another problem, okay? Another problem, you'll see there, it happens in verse 16. In verse 16, the problem that Solomon introduces is the problem of injustice, okay? Now, this is the first mention of injustice in the book of Ecclesiastes, but it will not be the last one. The second half of this book, the theme comes up over and over again, this theme of injustice. Listen to what verse 16 says. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Solomon begins this portion of chapter 3 by telling us, listen, in the place of justice, in the place of righteousness, where justice and righteousness should have been, there was only wickedness. And he's lamenting this. He's bemoaning this. It's a, a sad observation for Solomon to make in verse 16. Now, most commentators have, I think, rightly suggested that this is a reference to the two roles in society of these spheres, the judicial role and the priestly role, okay? That in the judicial courts, whether it be by judges or kings or whoever has oversight, there's to be justice. Solomon says where there is to be justice, there is only wickedness. That in the priestly role, whether that be in the temple or the functions of the priest, where they are to be functioning in righteousness, where there is to be righteousness, there is only wickedness. Okay, essentially saying to us, in the places where we should be experiencing just people and justice being administered, or righteous people and righteousness being administered, there is only wickedness. The Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, most often quoted by Jesus in the New Testament, the Septuagint says this, it, it interprets this verse a little differently. Solomon says, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, and there was the ungodly. And the place of, right, of righteousness, there was the ungodly. And you see how that takes it a step further to actually ascribe the wickedness and the ungodliness to individuals, to people, Okay. There was the ungodly in the place of justice and in the place of righteousness. Many people have suggested, sort of a side note here, many people have suggested that this is one good reason why Solomon didn't write this book. And, and here's their argument. If he's the king over Israel, then he can change whomever or whoever is in the courts and whoever is the priest. He has the authority to do that. So why would he bemoan and lament that there's wickedness where justice and righteousness should be? So they make the argument that this can't be Solomon writing this book. Now, I would suggest to you that both things can be true, that he can indeed be king, 
and he can have authority over all Israel, and yet he can rightly observe that where righteousness and justice ought to be, there is only wickedness, okay? That happens all the time today. We have politicians who will propose new laws and new amendments and the things they want to see changed, and they have the power to affect change, and yet at the same time, they're lamenting and bemoaning the condition of politicians, okay? And that happens all the time. I think it doesn't exclude Solomon being the author of this book at all. Now listen, injustice, this theme that will be picked up through the rest of this book, is, uh, is problematic, obviously. It's not according to God's design. It is to be fought against by the children of God in this world. But as, as we look at injustice, we have all seen this or experienced this in this world, haven't we? We have had experiences where justice where it ought to be administered, especially in courts, has not been administered. There's only wickedness there. We've seen it on a macro scale. We've seen it on a micro scale. We've experienced it personally. We've experienced it broadly. Same thing where there ought to be righteousness. We've experienced this in churches with church leaders. Where there ought to be righteousness, there was only wickedness and ungodliness. It's damaging to the people of God, isn't it? All right? We've all experienced this. I was thinking of an example that I might share with you, and I think Again, we've all experienced this in our own ways. I'll tell you one way that our family has experienced this. We, many of you know that our son Charlie is adopted. And about five years ago, uh, his birth brother was born. He immediately went to the foster care system, and we said, We're, we should pray about adopting him, okay? That's, that's very important to us. And so we prayed about it, and we f- felt led to pursue adopting his birth brother. And so we did that. We hired ourselves a lawyer. And the first thing the lawyer said to us was, listen, um, where this boy is in the state that he's in, uh, the system is corrupt, okay? So I can tell you this may or may not work. Just want to let you know you're putting your money into this. It may or may not work. But we move forward. And for two years, we pursued this and invested money and had meetings and a lot of heartache and a lot of mind ache and a lot of time and energy went into this and got to the end and were no further towards adopting this boy than when we had begun. And we realized over two years the corruption of a system that was designed to be just, but only was corrupt, wicked, ungodly. That was our experience. But we all experience injustice in this world, okay? So that's the problem. It is the introduction to the problem because Solomon will come back to it again and again throughout this book. We will look at it at a later time, but let's move on. That's the injustice, the observation of the problem. The next thing we see in this passage is that there is another truth. It's a big truth. Okay, another truth you can see in your bulletin uh, that, that this truth is most um, easily observed in verses 18 through 20. So let me read verses 18 through 20. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast. All is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. You see, Solomon is is making an observation about life that's going to be important to us. I think it's most pointedly observed in verse 19. And let me uh, illustrate for you this point just by giving you one Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is the word Mikra. Mikra. You don't have to know how to spell it. You don't even know how to know how to say how to say it. 
But it's an important word in verse 19 because you see verse 19 says, it says the same thing happens to the sons of man as happens to the animals. And the Hebrew word that's used there that's translated the same thing, it's the word mikra, okay? And mikra really doesn't mean the same thing. It's actually the word that means chance, accident, or luck, okay? It is the word that you would use to describe anything that didn't, wasn't intentionally pursued, but rather just kind of happened. It often has a, a negative implication. So you would say, if a deer ran out in front of a car and there was an accident, you would say, that was a mikra. It was chance. It was nobody's fault. It was an accident. It was bad luck. However, anybody would describe it today, meaning we have no intentional, logical sequence of events to connect to the things that we've done and the results that have happened, okay? The text in verse 19 then actually says, by chance, things happen to the sons of man, just as by chance things happen to animals, okay, or to the bees. So what's the point? Well, Solomon's making a very important point. He's not comparing us to animals because he thinks that in all things we are like the beast. He would never say that. It doesn't come up in this book, okay? What he is saying is like the animals, us human beings have no control over our fate. That's what he means when he says the same thing happens, okay? The animal may die, the human may die, okay? The animal may have children, the human may have children, okay? These things, as they are out of the control of the human being, so they are out of the control of the beast. In this way, we have no preeminence over the animals. And isn't that interesting, okay? Now, as, as you think about the reality of that statement, let me tell you what the truth is, okay? Here's the truth that we see in this passage. The same providence that comforts the heart of the believer vexes the heart of the unbeliever, okay? The same providence that comforts the heart of the believer vexes the heart of the unbeliever. And here's what I mean by that. Chapter 3 began with, there is a season for everything under heaven. And then Solomon says, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to heal and a time to kill, a time to break down and a time to build up. You remember that from chapter 3. The reality for the believer that we left with last week was this, okay? Though all of those seasons are not equally as pleasurable or bearable, there is comfort in the heart of the believer knowing that a good, just Loving, omniscient, and omnipotent God has planned all these things. It is in his providence. And so there is comfort in that. That same truth vexes the heart of the unbeliever. And let me show you how that easily is the case, okay? When God is rejected as the ultimate authority, the only functioning authority at that point becomes me. I am the master of my own fate. I am the master of my own dominion. I choose when I do things. I choose when I don't do things, okay? And when that is my world and my foundation is built upon a foundation where I am the ultimate authority, at some point or another, probably pretty quickly, I will come face to face with reality that I am not the master of my seasons, that I don't choose when I'm born or when I die, that I don't choose the time of healing and the time of death, that I don't choose the time of building up and of tearing down, that those things are dictated to me. And when those two worlds collide, there is an emptiness, there is an end of the rope that says, well then what is this all for? What is the meaning of all this? And so we see that the providence that comforts the hearts of the believer vexes the heart of the unbeliever. It is bitter and frustrating for a world without God. 
Now, many of you who know me well know that I'm not a huge fan of J.R. Tolkien, okay? And I know that should solicit boos from the congregation. You're very upset with me. I get that, okay? That's okay. I just can't read The Lord of the Rings. I don't get it. Don't blame me. We could talk after. But I have seen the first movie. Maybe that counts for something, all right? And the first movie, there's a conversation. It's a good conversation. I assume it's also in the book. Here's how the conversation goes. It explains beautifully this theme of the providence of God in the heart of the believer, okay? So they're in that cave uh, in the mountain, and Frodo says this to Gandalf. He says, I wish I had never found the ring. I wish none of this had ever happened. And that's the voice of humanity. And the voice of Gandalf is the voice of wisdom, and he says this. He says, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world besides the forces of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you were meant also to have it, and this is an encouraging thought, okay? The illustration, again, is very clear. We do not choose the events that happen to us. They are providentially ordered by a good God, right? As Gandalf says there, we choose how we respond to those events that have been given to us. And then he affirms there at the end the beautiful truth. Bilbo found the ring. It was meant then for Bilbo to give it to you, and that is an encouraging thought. You see how the same events that happen to the believer and the unbeliever, whatever they may be in their season and in their time, you see how according to the providence of God, they may bring comfort to the heart of the believer and yet may at the same very time bring vexation to the heart of the unbeliever. Okay, so that's an illustration from one of your favorite authors, J.R. Tolkien. Last, last point here. There is another exhortation. There's another exhortation you can see in your bulletin. That comes from verse 17 and verse 22. Listen, verse 17 and 22 are, um, are conclusions that Solomon makes. They're interesting, different conclusions, but you bring them together and you find one exhortation. So let me read verse 17 first. It says, I said in my heart that God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there's a time for every matter and for every work. Okay, so first of all, verse 17, what is that saying? It is Solomon's response to the observation of injustice. There's injustice in the world, but you know what? One day God will judge the righteous and the wicked, okay? The reality of that statement is that we can take consolation and comfort in knowing that one day our God will reconcile all wrongs. And it's not the restitution or reconciliation that we experience in this world as like if we go to court and someone has wronged us and the judge says, all right, they've wronged you. I rule that they'll pay you $50,000, okay? Because that type of restitution does nothing for the inside of us, does it, right? It takes care of some external issue, but we still leave broken, empty, parts of us missing, whatever the case may be. The restitution and reconciliation that God promises at the final day is one that makes us whole. It's one that restores everything that was lost. It's one that takes everything that was broken and it makes it complete, perfect, lacking nothing. Solomon's answer to the injustice of the world is that God will one day do this. That's a beautiful truth for believers. 
The second observation in verse 22 goes like this. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Now let me suggest to you, you've seen the writings of Solomon through the first three chapters and elsewhere in the Bible. Let me suggest to you that rarely do we see Solomon being sarcastic, so I don't believe this is sarcasm. You may read it like that. Your first reading might have been Solomon saying, oh, I guess there's nothing better than just to work and to enjoy life. That's not what he's saying. As we read Solomon, our first reading of him has to be that he's sincere in the statements that he's, he makes, and I believe he's sincere here, as he was in verse 14 when he made the same observation. So I saw that there's nothing better than that man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Listen, the observation is that there is nothing better for man to do than, than to work and to enjoy his work, all right? Now, I believe that to be a true statement, but there's a caveat here, and I believe the exhortation Bringing these two truths together gives us a very clear exhortation. And I want to phrase it like this, okay? God's final judgment, God dealing with the righteous and the unrighteous, and the exhortation to work and to enjoy our work and our toil, these two ideas come together, and here's basically what the message is. God tells us, stay in our lane, okay? Stay in your lane. And I know last week I gave a, a driving observ- uh, an, an analogy. We get behind the two Mack trucks, we got a bad perception. I don't know what it is about these driving analogies, but this week we'll go with staying in our lanes, okay? This is what I believe God means for us. The lane that has been ordained for man is this one. Work according to all that God has given you. Enjoy it and do it for the glory of God. The lane that God has is a very different one. God deals with seasons and times and eternal things. He is saying to us men and women, Work according to what God has given you. Tend the garden that he has entrusted to you. Work according to the glory of God, according to his righteousness, that his name would be lifted up, that you would find some satisfaction in the things that have been given to you by God in this world. Do that, but be anxious not about the things that are God's things. Those are God's things, okay? Stay out of God's lane. This is God's lane. It's not your lane, okay? That is judgment and righteousness and eternity and purpose and meaning and the times and the seasons. These are God things. Work for the righteousness, uh, the glory of God, for all that He's entrusted you with and enjoy that, but entrust to God, God's things. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he put it a little bit of a different way, and I want to read this quote to you. I have to credit Jeremiah with this quote because Jeremiah shared it with the youth group my daughter came home from youth group and said, I got this great, great quote for you, Dad. So she shared it to me, and I said, well, I've got to write that down. It sounds good for Ecclesiastes. So here it is. C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, he said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world are those who thought the most of the next world. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Aim at heaven and you'll get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. See, I think that's where these two ideas cross over. 
that if we know that God will judge the world and we know that some will be condemned and some will be declared righteous and innocent and we know that because of Christ, we who were once alienated and hostile in mind, that he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death on the cross in order to present us holy and blameless above reproach before him. If we know that, then we can do the most toiling in this world because we are those who think the most of the next world. Because we have eternity in our minds, we can labor well in the midst of futility and meaningless, meaningless and brokenness. Okay? Because we have eternity in mind, we can labor in a world that is wasting away. Because we think of the glory and the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, we can work for the well-being of those around us. We can labor well in this world because we have our attention, our eyes fixated on the world to come and the God who ordains and oversees all things and administers them for our good. So the exhortation from Ecclesiastes 3, the end of the chapter, is very simple this morning. Let us not live as the world lives, vexed by the providence of God, but let us live as those who have hope and meaning and purpose rooted in a future eternity. And let our future hope have its full impact on this present life as we work and we labor and we live and we love others and we're involved in our communities, and we exercise all of the freedom that God has given us in Christ Jesus, let us live as those who have hope in a future world, who eagerly wait for the returning of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we know when He returns, He brings with Him righteousness, justice, and victory. Let us live as people who know that victory has been won, and we're simply waiting to see the fulfillment when one day our Jesus returns. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we ask our Lord and our God that you would be glorified in everything that we say and do this morning. We thank you that you have given your Son, Christ Jesus, we thank you that you have not left us to our own devices in a world under the sun, but that you have broken into this world, you have sent your son, and you have redeemed us by his blood. And so now, that beautiful, most magnificent truth, let us live and rejoice in that truth. Give us comfort in our hearts, whatever befalls us, whatever season we enter into. Whatever thing you have prepared for us, let us enter into it with comfort in our hearts, knowing that you have planned it for our good, and you have planned it for your glory. And so, Lord God, would you prepare us for all seasons? Would you go before us and behind us, preparing the pathway? And in those moments of celebration and of blessing, would you cause us to rejoice with thanksgiving? And in those seasons of trial and of suffering, would you prepare our hearts that we would weather the storm by your spirit and that even in that we would glorify your name. We love you. We thank you. We glorify and praise you this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen.